Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. I have a very special guest today. His name is Julian Wilson. He's the founder of an emerging brand called Kunu, which blends Himalayan uh, manufacturing uh, elements and, and materials with a, a Western feel and check them out at kunu.com. And it's always interesting to see how brands are born and that's the spirit of this podcast today. So welcome Julian, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Carlos. Um, one of the things that we like to do when we kick things off is kind of get a feeling for the person behind the brand and, and the person, the person's origins, really. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe walk us through kind of what you did in college and what you did immediately afterwards just to, to sort of start that journey that ended up where you are today. Sure. Um, I was, my background is quite an eclectic one. Um, I went to military academy and then served the British Army as a captain, leaving as a captain. Um, and then I went into financial communications working in the city and moved to, moved to Asia where I spent most of my career and the last appointment I had was starting the office of a, a London-based consulting firm in Beijing and I was running that for three years but I had one of those sort of mid-career epiphanies where I, I got a little tired of consulting having no physical tangible Product. And we were working very much in the investor relations, financial communication space. So the, the whole message and the, the sort of ethos behind the business was really about bottom line numbers, bottom line profit. And I eventually just got tired of it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought there's got to be more to business than this. And you know, I actually want to produce something. I want a physical product that I can show people. And, that, they, they, and I had this itch of starting my own business as well. And, and I think, you know, people are either, either have that itch or they don't. It's like writing a novel. Yeah. And I, I thought, well, this is a point in my career, a point in my life where if I don't really take that gamble, um, I have savings, I have a certain amount of cash, I can t- take me through a couple of years of um, not paying myself. And, and this is, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. So it was, Right time, right place. What year was that? That was um, 2000, 2000, late 2008, 2008, early 2009. So the, the idea for Kunu, I guess, was seeded probably around 2005. Um, when just before I moved to Beijing, I took a few weeks, well, about a month off, and I traveled through the western parts of China, and I stayed with Tibetan nomads. And went to horse festivals and got to see quite a sort of remote part of the world and, and a fairly untouched culture. And, and I think that was where the sort of, probably the seed was planted and then I went back, continued with my consulting work. But I think there was always this, the seed was germinating during that time and I was thinking, you know, I, I want to make a product, I want a business that does some social good. And I began thinking and thinking and thinking, I thought, well, I'm, I'm in Asia, I'm in China, I should do something here. Um, so the, the broad concept of the, uh, and, I, and I, I kept going back to this the, the sort of Tibetan matter and thinking, maybe I can do something there. And I remember the wool that they had, which was, you know, the, the Tibetans have nothing, they just have yaks. They live off the yak, they live at 4,000 meters. Uh, the yak gives them food, it gives them milk, all sorts of sustenance and it gives them shelter, and, and traditionally clothing as well. And 
I decided to do a, a, another trip up to the plateau where I again stayed with a, a herder community that I'd um, met in 2005. And I asked, I asked them what they were doing with the wool. Um, essentially, there were four things I could have started out with this. I could have done um, cheese, milk products, I could have done leather products, I could have done wool products. And you know, leather involves killing the animal, and being in the food and beverage space is, is tricky. The, the, the hygiene aspects, the export aspects. And I was looking more as an export business because although I'd lived in China about at that time about four or five years, it was it was it was I, I never saw that I understood the Chinese consumer. I would have had to rethink how I did that and I would not be the person that knew the consumer. So I always thought of it as a, a linking these communities in the most direct way possible to an end Western consumer and therefore creating value for them and hopefully creating a business that is viable for me. So that was the sort of where we came from. And I, I just was more interested in, to be honest, making clothing. And, and leather goods, you, you have to kill the animal. It disrupts all sorts of, um, it, it disrupts the economic ecosystem. So, so we, we just settled on clothing. And I looked at a lot of brands that were using merino wool more and more. There's been a lot of innovation in the textile industry. And, and there continues to be in, in terms of making, um, you know, with wool, they've been able to spin it much finer, they've been able to make it machine washable, there's lots of things that they've done to the point where wool has now become a sort of almost stable, a, wool is now well used within the sports industry. So brands like Icebreaker and Smart Wool have really driven fine wool forward as a, as a, as a performance fabric. And, and, and that was sort of what I was thinking, it was design clothing that comes from the Himalayas that works for people who want to travel to the Himalayas. And, um, and just just to geek out on yeah. textiles a little bit here, you um, didn't really know anything about it. I mean, you, you, you kind of got to textiles and, and, and anything having to do with weave and, and uh, clothing as a consequence of business deduction. You said, I don't want to be in food and beverage, I'm going to be in this, but you didn't have a background in design and clothing and manufacturing. So to some extent, it must have seemed like both an exciting thing, but also a bit of an overwhelming one in terms of understanding all the components. And I guess maybe two part question, the first one being like, how did you overcome that hurdle? Was it, is that ultimately how you met your co-founder? Or two, how is it that you went about building a, a company with the knowledge of something like Smart Wool and Icebreaker that is uh, either technologically advanced, like what they've done, or like a Vormi who is blending membranes for waterproofing with the, mm -hmm. the cloth, or going all the way super traditional where you are entirely just relying on the, on the natural properties of the fiber? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think the first part of it is, you know, to a degree, ignorance is bliss. You know, we, we were driven by this idea that, you know, this is, this is a cool idea like this idea, therefore we can make it work. And, and a determination to make it work. And in terms of the components in the middle, you know, I, you, one of the key things with any startup, as you know, is you've got to say, okay, this is the idea, these are the components I need to make that idea happen. And clearly we, we, we had the vision to do this. Mm. Um, 
but we didn't have the textile expertise. Now, the beauty of the textile industry is you, 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 you have brands and then you have manufacturers. Manufacturers have a huge amount of knowledge about how to get things done. Um, we were very lucky in that we found um, a very good manufacturer, a foreign-owned factory, um, actually owned by a British guy. Um, and we continue to work with them today that knows a lot about knitwear. And they do a lot of work for, they were doing a lot of work for Burberry at the time, Givenchy, all top knitwear brands. And <clears throat> I think they provided a lot of knowledge about the fiber to yarn and final product. Um, we also brought in a freelance designer to help with the, the design aspect. Um, and, and there's also the, the concept as well of, so we were able to bring it to the point where we could make a sweater. And, you know, it was probably a little harder than I envisioned, actually. I was like, well, you know, you just knit it, right? Grandma can knit a sweater. But it's quite a complicated, it is a reasonably complicated process. But with the right partners, you can make that happen. But making the product is one component. You then have, like, what does this brand mean? Um, how are we going to sell it? Um, and I had no retail experience either. And another component is we were in China, we were trying to sell overseas. Um, retail is a very fast changing business at the moment. Um, we were sort of, we started this at the point where e-commerce was just starting to take off, um, particularly in clothing, um, which is harder, I think, to sell clothes through the web than it is you know, consumer goods, a lot of other consumer goods. So it, it was a case really of going out and finding people who we thought would, who, who could help us, but also a case of bringing like a minimal viable product to market. So what we did was we, you know, we had this idea perhaps of being more of a sports activewear brand. But when we brought the product, we did a first run of product. And the feedback we got was that actually this this is feels quite luxurious, and you know as much as I can I, I can throw in my bag and wear it. I, I would pay more and have it as like a and wear it in more a broader range of situations. Okay. So there are the inherent <clears throat> properties of the wool, which are it's warmer than regular wool, it's softer than regular wool behaves a bit like cashmere that doesn't have that pilling you get yeah. with cashmere. So they're great sort of performance properties, but ultimately people were saying, but it's too nice. You know, if I want to stuff something in my bag, I'll just go and buy a, a polyester um, layer from yeah. another brand, Patagonia or something. Yeah. I mean, to, to some extent you've covered like pretty much all the really amazing topics of what define a brand, but to some extent it's happened over a period of, of time, including getting this feedback from your customer. But if we kind of reverse back to the point when you were coming up with the design for that first sweater, mm -hmm. there must have been some elements of the brand that you already had sort of in place, at least in your head. And I'll just kind of cap what I've heard. I, you, know, you wanted to have a product that respected the, the Tibetan uh, people that you had had a relationship with. You wanted to have a sustainable uh, way of harvesting the, the, the yak product, in this case it was their wool, and then you wanted to build something that was performance and sports specific, and thus the, the sweater which leveraged all the capabilities of, of the textile. 
and then it hit the customer, right? And the customer gave you this feedback. But maybe you can walk us through a little bit of how you thought, how you thought through that, that brand, how you thought through mm -hmm. how that messaging was going to be, what it was going to be resonating with, who, who, what price point, all those, all those components that sort of defined that very first product. And then we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about how you had to iterate on that after, you know, contact with, with the customer. Yeah, I mean, I guess from a business point of view, the first thing you do is sort of model a, a price point for the product. Yeah. Um, so you know, that's taking the, the, the sort of raw raw facts and, and rather than the emotional aspects of the brand. So if if you model it bottom up, we're sourcing at fair prices from Tibetan herders in remote places, and and we're working with a world that's pretty niche. So there's not the economies of scale. We're creating a lot of our own yarns. You know, we're the only people using the particular yarns we use. So we have to work with the spinners don't sell those yarns as their own proprietary yarns. We have to go and work with them to develop them. All of that means that the cost, you know, particularly in the short term, is a lot higher. So, and and the wool itself is not cheap, um, particularly if you want to pay a fair price for it. So we're looking at a premium price product. Now, it's not the same price as cashmere, but it's noticeably more expensive yeah. than, than regular, even fine merino wool. So already you've, you've got a space, you know, not, I knew that we couldn't go head to head with cashmere as, as a pure luxury thing, because, you know, yak, cashmere, even the name, right? Cashmere has so much market up. You, you really, it, it's really, really tough to go in and try and say you're better. And the reality is, if you get the absolute finest cashmere, it is finer than that. And there's a simple, I, I can't, you know, mess with nature on that. It, it is what it is. But Yak has its own properties. So you're looking at an area that is sort of above the standard functional mass market merino, and probably will never compete with high-end Laura Piana type cashmere. But it can compete with lower, you know, other types of cashmere, with slightly coarser cashmere. Yeah. Um, but what you have is that you have a great fiber, and you know, as I said, the feedback on the first round of product we did was that this is this is too luxurious for it to be a functional product. So that got us thinking. So our our, our price point was really to do with okay, let's take the function, the great functional properties and the sort of luxurious feel of this fiber, and let's put it in a price point that is probably just below the, the high-end luxury brands, but it's, it's notably above the, the high street brands. So that's the space we wanted to play in. Then it was sort of, okay, what is the brand about? So the brand, for me, one of the first things about the brand when we set it up was about creating these opportunities for these nomadic herders. I mean, that was a huge, that, was, that, that is a primary driver behind the brand, was to create opportunity for those herding communities. Um, if you're trying to be a responsible brand in that sense, you know, the way you make has to be responsible. Right? So the way we make the second component is really how we make the product. Um, we're making a premium product, therefore the quality of it is very important. Therefore, the, um, <coughs> the way it's made is important. Mm -hmm. So you know, we work in a dirty industry, the textile industry. You know, it does, there, is, there is an environmental impact of making any any piece of clothing. What I wanted to do was make sure I tried to minimize that. Yeah, Patagonia is very transparent about that. That's one of the things that they, they really stand for these days. 
Yeah, and it's, it's tough, you know, when you're faced, if, you, if you're taking these as principles, you know, they're not just glib marketing um, expressions. I mean, I, I faced situations where people have said, oh, but I want this in like, I don't know, like a, a, an orange or something. I'm like, well, you can't have it. You know, when your customer asked, said, I want this color, it wasn't orange. I can't remember what color it was, but it was a bright color. And I said, well, we can't do it because the fiber is brown. I don't want to bleach the fiber because bleaching has, bleach. has, a, has an environmental impact. You got to get rid of the bleach. It damages the fiber, therefore. The, the, I don't believe if you have used toxic bleach, there is an environmental impact. Yeah. Doubt. There is also an impact on the fiber. So the feel of it is different. Um, yeah. And it's not that you can't depigment the fiber. Yeah. But I wasn't comfortable with I wasn't comfortable that it was going to be done in a responsible way. So I just said, you can't have it. And this is the reason why you can't have it. And the interesting thing is the customer then comes back and says, oh, I get that. I'm fine. I didn't really care about that color so much. I'm happy with brown. I'm yeah. happy with gray. I'm happy with this. So the customer, just because they ask, you know, if you give them a reason, they're intelligent people. They, they understand that reason. And I think for me, it was important that you stuck to those core values because as a brand, if you, Particularly a consumer brand, if you lose those core values just for simply making a short term mm. but then you kind of get, you end up in a lot of trouble. But I, I guess one of the things that I want to sort of push a little deeper in um, regarding the core values and mm. how you define your brand is let's look at the first product you launched. There was an assumption there that it was going to be an athletic product or that it could be used in athletic situations. And the customers came back and said, actually, it's too luxurious to do so. Mm -hmm. If you had gone down the path of like a, uh, a performance type product, you would have had probably a little bit more um, um, flexor, flexor cuts on the on the, the clothing. You would have had more emphasis on breathability. You've had a whole series of product decisions that sort of went with the language of a performance sport product, the way that SmartWool does, for example. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, now that it's kind of flipped a little bit more towards a lifestyle use of, of, the, of mm -hmm. the textile, it's now moving into sort of uh, more of a romanticized view of its use and, right, and, right. and elements of design are more romanticized rather than functionalized the way that let's say a Patagonia chooses to, to make things. And so I just want to understand how much of that part of the brand you kind of left up in the air or how much of it were you ultimately like you actually had a thesis and you wanted it but then you kind of had to adapt to the customer's desires. And to some extent, let go of that original hope, but you know maybe you're, you're okay with it. But I'm just curious as to how that played out in your head. Yeah, I mean, I think when, when you talk about um, you talk about performance, you talk about it in the context of a particular usage, right? Mm. Um, <clears throat> and what I realized from the, the first the first round of products is that you know people wanted it for wider applications. So you know I didn't want it to look you know have this cover stitching here and you know tight. Yeah, you look like some sort of triathlete in it because actually most of our customers are going to wear it. Yeah, they, they might wear it skiing. They might wear it, you know it's wool that's warm. Why wouldn't you? But they really think of it as you know more of an apres ski product that yeah. they could ski in. So um, to me, that what that meant was if I look at what I have in my, I mean, I yeah. exercise a fair bit. Yeah. Um, I'm not obsessive, but I, you know, I exercise three or four times a week. If I look at what I wear in my closet, you know, I wear my everyday things probably more. I use them across multiple, you know, 
much more money. So we wanted something that was much more multifunctional. Yeah. And you know, I could I, I travel a lot as well. And this was another this has been a lot of a lot of my own design design thinking. I travel a lot and I don't like taking lots of stuff with me. I want something that I can wear in multiple situations. And I also want something I don't have to wash all the time. And one of the beauties of wool is you don't have to wash it all the time. You know, it's naturally antimicrobial. So it was to me looking at the sort of um, the, the profession, young professional guys who want something that looks good, they could throw it over a shirt, or they could, you know, when they want to go into a you know, podcast like this or wherever they might be. Yeah. Or they could they could throw it throw over a t-shirt at the weekend just go and hang out with fishing or whatever it was. So it has that multifunctionality. That was sort of important to me. Probably some of your military background played into that as well, didn't it? The design ethos and functionality. I think so. I mean, I think when you, yeah, when you, probably when you have a military background, you know, you, you, you have visions of being freezing cold and wet in Wales. The, the functional aspects of clothing really hit you in the face of those quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you think a lot about, I think functionality is something I probably subconsciously have in the way I think about things. And, and I have traveled a lot and, you know, I, I, even traveling around the Tibetan Plateau, it, it gets pretty cold. Yeah. And, and, you know, for those trips up there, I don't really want to wear sports equipment. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do think there's, there, there is this space in the middle now where I've, I've had a few conversations with people saying that the, the outdoor industry is having a lot of problems with the millennial generation. That they're really not, the, the, the message that they're selling of you know, fastest, quickest to dry, the millennials are just not buying it. And, and a lot of the big brands are having a number of problems with this, really trying to work out how. So what is resonating with the millennials? I feel like I'm I think everyone's trying to work that out, right? <laughs> I think everyone's trying to work out. Two non-millennials talking about what resonates with millennials. Right. I mean, that is a question I am also trying to work out. Um, I mean, they're not our target market, specifically for Kuna. Mm. Um, partly, yeah, I think, in, in people in their early 20s particularly, you know, they, they, they tend to, their views on things change much faster, and their views on clothes change faster, fast fashion works. So do you think, I mean, like, you know, you said it right now, like, Kuna doesn't have the millennial as the key target market. It might be that some of them really enjoy it because they, they, they do discover it via word of mouth. But it sounds to me increasingly like if you're starting a brand, to some extent, it, it would seem that it's best to do so around your own needs. Because the, the founders that I have spoken to that are in, in sort of a, a new lifestyle brand, a new retail brand, they tend to be born out of needs that they had, not some sort of abstract thing that they mm -hmm. understood academically about a, a demographic. It's not like you went out and said, I'm gonna deal with a product specific to millennials and do focus groups. It sounds to me like it was something that really spoke to your needs and your wishes and your and your hopes. And that's where it was born from. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's lots of there's lots of me in the brand is a hard not to when you're creating yeah. something like that. Um, what I what I want to do is you know make it less about me. Mm. To a degree, but the, the initial. So how do you do that? How do you move it away from like for founders who started on that foundation, which is yeah, it's rational. But now that you move on, like you know, we fast forward on, on Kunu's lifestyle and 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 history. 
it's now a product that has multiple different products, right? It's not just one sweater, it's several sweaters for both mm -hmm. men and women, accessories and other components. And we are looking, yeah, this coming year, <clears throat> and we're looking at, you know, lighter weight, spring, summertime things, we're looking at potentially outerwear, things like that. There's lots of things we're looking at. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the product range will diversify, and, and you're but right, the aesthetic, yeah. the, the thought, the design, Ethos with as you expand, yeah. keeping that uh, consistent is, is, is a challenge. So how how have you? I mean, to some extent, you you're probably working with more and more people, and you mm -hmm. as a founder are moving more and more to a manager or a design manager rather than an actual sort of the draftsman. Right. How how what recommendation would you give to founders that are exploring new products in the retail space about how to? delegate that or how to sort of transition away from you as the design because this is something that was born out of you and how do you manage to transplant that ethos onto others so that they're like I got it this is it I'm sitting down to draft this product and this product represents that how, how do you accurately transplant that culture um, I think it's any business is successful by building a, a team building a team around initially around you but Increasingly, you want a core team of people who are who are capable. Make you can't carry anyone in a small company. Right? They all have to contribute something, and you know you're bringing in someone. These little you know, buckets of things that need doing with us. Design and product is, is very important. Brand and marketing is very important. Sales is of course very important. Um, the Tibetan community management of that is very. important. So there's, there's, there's big areas now, the Tibetan community relationship, that's one thing I do eventually. You know, I have now one specific community where I've got a very good Tibetan who is, is, is effectively heading that up and more and more I work with Dojay to make things happen. And that, that's good and he can give me feedback about, he, he's, he's the sort of new generation of Tibetans who yeah. are, you know, I can't possibly understand Tibetan nomad thinks all the time, and you know you've got to be sensitive to their cultural needs. Um, Dojay is from that family, but he speaks excellent English. He speaks excellent Chinese. He speaks um, his own dialect of Tibetan. You know he's he's increasingly valuable, and we're putting more and more resource into that community to allow them to have a greater say and play a greater role in the whole manufacturing process. Mm. You take. Um, Product, you know, I, I don't have a design, training in design. So I have an idea and an ethos, like I said, you know, multifunctional clothing that people can, you know, adventurous people want to wear. But that, the aesthetic of that needs to be taken by a design person and put into a specific garment and the technical aspects of that garment, of how a seam is, is made and all the different things that go into this, what type of yarn we should use. I, I, I know quite a lot about it now, actually, mm. but it still needs someone. You still want a designer to take ownership of that. Because as you grow, you can't have ownership of absolutely yeah. everything. But how do you manage to not piss them off by like being too micromanaged? Because, for example, um, it might be in some cases you hire a very cutting-edge new designer who's keen to work on your brand because the ethos resonated to them. But they also have certain things that they want to put their brand on stamp on it too. And it might mean bleaching the colors, for example, so that they can't have like the spring collection represent the typical colors of a spring collection. 
how do you prevent before having to have those awkward conversations? How do you, uh, what do you recommend to founders in, in, in sort of transference of that culture without becoming a micromanager at the top level of telling people, no, 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 you can't design this. No, it has to be like this. It has to be in black or black or black. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I think one of the things I, the one thing the military taught me or military academy taught me was um, you give people an area to work in, you give them the parameters that they, um, they operate within, and then you let them get on and make decisions. You give them autonomy to work in that space. So let's take the design example. Someone comes in as a designer. Now, if they, they have to have already bought into the, the, the ideals and principles of the company and the ethos of what we're trying to design. So they already fit within that. Now, I then should leave them as a designer, I've got a designer, with a lot of latitude to go out and design. And, and because they're designers, they will push the boundary probably a little more than I will, you know, in terms of, I look at it and go, wow, that's, that's something that's new. Um, I don't, wow, I don't know what to do about that. That's, I'm not used to it. Yeah. And when you see something new aesthetically, you're sometimes, oh, I don't know about that. But over time, I kind of let it sit and look at it for a couple of weeks and then think, do I, does it grow on me or do I think, no. And you have to sort of trust the designer's decision. Um, so it's collaborative. You know, you, yeah. you give them enough, you ultimately you have to sign off on it because it's a commercial decision at the end of the day whether that thing will sell. You know, we're not creating art, we're creating clothes yeah. people buy. But the designer has to feel that they've had enough ownership and input into the brand and I have to allow them to have that. Otherwise, why am I hiring them? I yeah. might as well just do it myself and that's yeah. knowing for the business. Yeah. Um, same with marketing, you know, I sort of say, okay, fine, I'm part of the brand, I founded the brand, but the brand is not me, you know, I can have my own separate brand, but Kuno is Kuno. Yeah. I mean, and, and Kuno has to grow bigger than me, you know, it's, 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 so you, you need to have a marketing person who can be objective and look at you, okay, you're the founder, yeah. these are the areas where we really need you to push the brand. Yeah. Go on a podcast, go, whatever it might be, go and talk about yeah. something somewhere. Talk about a trip you've done. <clears throat> but these are the areas where it's just got to be Kuno. And Kuno needs to be about other people. It's a, yeah. it, it was initially designed to be bringing these remote communities to a Western marketplace. It was effectively about connecting people. Yeah. So the customers are a huge part of the brand. Yeah. And, and the more that we can talk about what they're doing and the more that we can make them part of the brand, you know, the more they can use social media to talk about us, that's how you build it. That's yeah. how you build a community, and that's how you build a brand. And then, it, then it becomes less about me. And it's so about it, community. Yeah, and, and you hope that the people that buy into the brand are people that have the same ideals, um, follow the same aesthetic, etc., etc. And, and that way, it should grow organically in a, within yeah. a certain within these certain parameters. Yeah. 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 No, it makes sense. It makes sense. I don't know if that that will work. I mean, I. That, that's my own assumption. Yeah. The, the devil is always in the execution of it. Yeah, for sure. So if we move now to the logistics sides of things, you know, the, the bit that I think is probably less romantic, the bit that's probably less, um, you know, what people see on the out facing, you know, it's everything from like making sure shipments show up on time because you've got to import that. You've got to make it, you got to stitch it, you got to put it together and there's quality assurance. What, what's been like the biggest thing that you underestimated? What was the thing that you're like, oh, this is going to get done in one month? It took a year. Yeah, I think 
that's that's a that's a common thing across all businesses, right? If, if you you think it's going to take three months, it's probably going to take six with startups. We're always, I think as founders, we're always very kind of gun ho and bullish and natural optimists. Um, I think you know. I probably at the beginning was carried away with the romance of Kuhn and what it could be and this idea of nomads to customers and you know being in stores in London from the Tibetan Plateau. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a cool idea, mm. but you know the logistics of that and doing it with two people, it's yeah that's pretty challenging when you're going up to the Tibetan Plateau and you're trying to sell it in London and you, I mean I, I think. You know, I have been guilty of massively underestimating how much resource goes into it. So I've had to shoulder that additional burden of doing it. And, you know, it is, it's tough. Um, and how much did that slow you down, like, according to your wishes? Was that like a three-month slowdown or was that like a six-month? Well, I think in terms of, you know, had we had more, but had we had money thrown you wouldn't solve all the problems, of course, but we would have been able to accelerate things a lot faster by having more people who were experts. So, you know, if I if I go back and think about it, I should have really just perhaps been more ruthless and said, okay, we need to, this. We cannot move forward without a really good retail salesperson in this core market that we're going to sell into. So we have to hire that person. Now we can't afford to pay this person to come from some equity, or and we have to raise money on the back of that. I think I probably should have, you know, maybe I should have, I should have brought more capital into the company much, much earlier. I think it was probably that, that. That's a lesson, and I say this in the context of logistics because it would have enabled me to probably have more people, yeah, more people dealing with different aspects of it. Now, from a, from a personal point of view, it's been extremely useful because I now have done every aspect of logistics from talking to a Tibetan nomad to talking to a, a retail store to dealing with a, a customer of ours through an e-commerce site on the, the, the customer's inquiry hotline. So I've done everything in between and I spent a lot of time at all the factories. Mm -hmm. So I, I now understand it. I now understand every aspect of it. Had I just brought in, you know, been like the CEO, got in a load of money, put all these people in place, I wouldn't understand the business anywhere. Mm -hmm near like I do now. And, and one of the things that you mentioned when we, we started was how you didn't want the food and beverage industry because of all the challenges associated with it. And then therefore you went down this path. Now that you've kind of gone down this path, what are the things that you're like, crap, I didn't, I didn't expect people to like, you know, return stuff after, you know, Christmas because they didn't like it kind of stuff. Like what, what, what kind of stuff are you... Um, I think from a, the, the retail... In many ways, I don't think there's many big surprises. You know, I knew, I knew that, I knew that the, the logistical chain was going to be tough. It's taken me till this year, really, to, if I'm honest, to get it at a point where it's not a continual burden to me. And the way that we've managed to do that is simply by having good partners in place. So I have a very good garment about the plateau. You know, we message once a week probably about small things, but we're in touch. We provided him with a de-airing machine and a technician, taught a couple of nomads how to use that. So that's, you know, wool goes to, 
goes to him, he processes, they sell it to us at a higher price because it's already been dehead. But that's a cost we would incur anyway. But this is now a cost, this is now revenue that's staying in the Tibetan community as opposed to going to a big factory in, in eastern China. So that, that works. Um, I moved to the UK because I wanted to be closer to the customer and I'm, I'm from here and I'm sick and tired of worrying about whether I'm allowed to stay in the country for another year. I, I can't build a business in yeah. a country that doesn't give me long-term visibility about me being in that country. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I moved to the UK and you know I could have gone to the States equally, but it's partly personal reasons, but the EU, the US, we're so small that frankly you crack one of those. Yeah. The growth can be huge. Yeah. Fashion so, knows no borders. Fashion knows no And, and e-commerce, you know, we, we reach, uh, you know, through the web, a lot of our heart. Probably about 40% of our customers. Some of our random purchase, somebody from Antarctica? Uh, we've, had, we've had some from the outer reaches of Canada, so the, close to the Arctic Circle, um, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, we've, had, uh, we've had one from Iraq. We've had, um, we've had where else is fairly random? Uh, the rest of them have been fairly uh, yeah, normal, right. relatively normal. I mean, some places in places like the states I've never heard of. You know, sort of there hasn't been a sort of. I think this is the interesting thing about the web is you know you build a your community is built around I don't know, common search terms, common interests. Um, you know, every yak herder around the in the Western world I sort of know now. They've sort of eventually got in touch with us. So you build this. You don't tend to get, if we, if we opened a store, mm -hmm. we would have a cluster of people around that store. So when we opened it in London, mm -hmm. you'd probably build a big community in London. But because we started mostly online and in Beijing to a degree, but Beijing was a flow back because they're all expats. Our community is very widely dispersed. Mm -hmm. kind of makes the, coming back to the logistical question, yeah. that makes it a little more challenging as well. But I don't think there, there was nothing that was a massive surprise. I think mean, what I've seen over the last five years is a massive change in the um, sort of technology enabling um, retail. So when we first started, we were sort of clunking away with this sort of Magento-based product that frankly was terrible. Uh, it was really hard for us. I, I, I don't have a coding background and I'm learning it, but you know, I'm never going to be able to build a, you know, a really cool e-commerce site. Hmm. And you know we were kind of clunking away. I mean, simple things like changing the product page was hard. It was difficult. It wasn't very intuitive. And we switched across to Shopify, which you know has made a massive difference to the ease with which you can set up an, an e-com site. And then you, you know you pay the gateway plugs in, and you know there's there's hardly any coding required. It's and then we used design. this 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 period of time to plug one of our companies called ShopRocket. Okay. Take a look at it. Okay. Um, for those that are listening, plugging ShopRocket. I will look go at it for creating your own e-commerce space. Look at, uh, as single, Shop as Rocket. easy as a single line of code. Right. Um, we don't do advertising in, in, in these podcasts, but <laughs> at least I can plug my own company. Yeah, um, anyway, so yeah, so you, you definitely, it, it's been something that's evolved quite a bit, it sounds like. Um, yeah, and then Shopify, <laughs> the central point is everyone's recognized these, these, these platforms, are, you know, they need the API, you know, FedEx, all these different people, everything plugs into it now. Even our accounting system, which is, you know, we use Zero, which is, you know, cloud-based accounting system, which is, uh, well, I find, I, I can follow it, therefore most, yeah. most people should be able to follow it. Um, <clears throat> that links with Shopify. I mean, it's just, uh, but the evolution over five years, mm. 
in sort of tech-enabled e-commerce is, is yeah. I found amazing. Okay, and if if I bring it back to some some of the original questions that we were talking about, would would you categorize Kunu as a social impact company? I mean, it's a new category of company that people are increasingly more conscious about. But you know, you didn't it didn't start off, but it could have. It's it's both ways. I, I don't know. Is it a social impact company? Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the problems with this is the the categorization. Um, and at the beginning, I think it's become even less. It was even less well defined. So when you say yes, Kunu was set up to have a social impact. Um, it was designed to create economic opportunity, and it still is um, a big. It still is a central part of the company to create opportunity for these developing communities. Um, now, people will say, "Oh well." So you're like an NGO. I mean, originally, I think people have moved on a bit from that. But there's a so you're a non-profit. I said no, we're a for-profit social impact company. So what we, I, I, what I wanted to do is find a way to lock yeah. it, lock in that component yeah. and just forget about definitions and just yeah. say, look, this is what we are. Put us in whatever pigeonhole you want to put us into. And people have different ways of filing you on it. So what I said, I thought was we take two percent of our revenue. And that would be invested back into these communities mm. in, in some form. And the way I want to do that is really investing in um, Tibetan entrepreneurs, because I think young Tibetan entrepreneurs are the people who are going to really help these communities thrive and survive. Mm. You know, it's not NGO money. It's it's not always sustainable. It relies on donations. What I wanted to do is create sustainable businesses, mm. and the only way you can be a sustainable business is to make money. Mm. So. Which brands do you admire that are similar to, to that? I mean, Tom's obviously I think was one of the first who pioneered this sort of um, money going to a cause, but you are going a little bit further than that because not only is your money going to that cause, your actual production and inventory and, and, and supply chain comes from the cause itself, thus it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Right? So curious as to any other brands that you admire? Yeah, that's, that, that is a good question. Um, you know, I, I've been reading the book about Patagonia, by the way, uh, the Yves Schwinard uh, book. Oh, let my Patagonia. people go surfing. Yeah, let my people go surfing. It's a great read for those of you that are listening to the podcast, but it, it really kind of goes into some of the values that he has and how, like, even identifying supply chain. Um, he, he's done a great job of, of identifying supply chain that share the same values that the company does. And in some ways, he innovated that, I think. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, Laura Piana did, um, they've done a lot with grassroots with Vicunia, the, the, which is you know, rare animal fiber. And um, I think you look at the, the coffee industry as well, where there's working directly with artisanal farmers, and then there's been a few cases of debunk this in the chocolate industry. But, and, and I'm sure there's lots of, there's lots of yeah. cynicism around this now, but. Yeah. I think you know the the coffee industry probably was one of the ones that I initially looked at as working direct yeah. with farmers as directly as you can, so that you miss out you know, all these middlemen layers yeah. where economic value is destroyed. And you look mm -hmm. at the, the cost of a, you know 
you look at the cost of a packet of coffee in the supermarket, and then you look at what it was actually paid. I mean, it's just such a minute proportion. Yeah. And, and you know, I think it is going to be shocking to people when you see what you know a raw bean or, or even some raw wool costs relative to the yeah. sweater. But that's why you know raw wool is is, is raw wool. Yeah. What I wanted to do was push more of the value chain to the community. Yeah. Now I'm realistic. I can't make a sweater that can sit in a super, sit in a, a, a department store or a high-end shop in London next to you know, a well-known luxury brand, well, who knows? luxurious brand. But I can't make that in a Tibetan yeah. village. It, it's a different. Oh, it's a different mean, thing. Yeah. I see what you mean. Now maybe it. maybe in twenty years I can. Yeah. But maybe in five years I don't know. But you know I'm not going to try because yeah. I know it's not going to happen. Mm. I'm not going to waste time and money on it. So what I want to do is make small steps. Yeah. So, okay, do you want to collect? Well, it, it really is simple, right? It, it, will you sell me wool? What price will you sell? We agree a price. Okay, we buy the wool. Now, if I give you this machine, I'll buy the wool for five times that price. Do you want to go through this process of processing the wool? And then there'll be waste wool that you can use for other things. Yeah. Do you want to do that? And I'll, by the way, we'll buy the machine and we'll send the technician to train. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and and yeah. the so way you do that is with by yeah. that. So that's the two percent fund going to an entrepreneur. I mean, you know, Dorje is the guy we work with. Going to him, and you know, he, he wants to do this. He has this idea to develop his own business, and we say, right, we'll fund it. We're your biggest client. That's how we go, yeah. and, and that creates value for them. Mm. So the more we can do with that, maybe we're looking at potentially making some products there. Mm. Tibetans have excellent weaving skills, and there's no reason why they couldn't make a really high-end product. Cool. But so we always like we always like to end um, the podcast with having you plug somebody that you think is doing a great job, or an organization that you think is doing a great job, or something that you'd like people to, to browse to. Of course, everybody should go to kunu.com. So that's plug number one. That's plug number one. But uh, but plug number two, who would it be? Um, I think probably something like. Grameen Bank, I think the, the whole microfinance movement is very interesting. Um, I, I, you know, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you, you believe that sort of entrepreneurs and innovation can solve a lot of the world's problems. And I think when you have, I think the, the model of economic development, of handouts and NGO type, Involvement it is it's NGOs definitely have a role. There are certain things where NGOs yeah. are very valuable, but, but I think in terms just, of an economic, yeah. getting an economy going, getting people working, getting people feel good about themselves. No one feels good when you, you give them something, right? Yeah. You your hands out, someone puts money in it. There's something does it, it, it isn't it isn't good for the soul. But when you say and and uh, you know it's it's one of the things you face as an entrepreneur, right? You, Getting getting capital. I go to the bank. I ask for capital. They all say no. You're a tiny company. <laughs> I mean, how do you get funded? Right. So this whole and if you're a if you're a guy running a taxi in, in Kampala, um, you know how how do you get money to fund your buying your cab, whatever it is. You know how, this sort of micro loan to help farmers to help them scale their businesses. I just think it's a it's, it's a great way in, in the developing world of allowing people firstly to get an economic um, to create an economic income for themselves mm. through a small business 
And secondly, that's great for the, that's great for the local economy. And thirdly, it's great for making making them feel good about themselves. Yeah. And you know, out of that, perhaps one day we'll become bigger you know, global champions or unicorns, or whatever, whatever comes out of it. But you know, I, I think that that movement bringing capital to ideas on a very micro level. Yeah. I think that's a great way for um, developing economies to flourish. Sounds good. Well, Julia, thanks for joining us and for sharing the insights uh, to how you've developed Kunu. And for those of you that are listening and want a warm sweater for the holidays, it's never too late to buy a holiday gift uh, from kunu.com. Uh, check it out. <laughs>